completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Hello and welcome Unbalanced listeners. This is Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm your host, Brian. I'm a history nerd. In each Unbalanced episode, I read a fascinating and usually little-known story from history to my friend Mike, who comes into each episode completely ignorant, both to the topic and pretty much in general. <laughs> welcome, Mike. How are we doing? Well, thank you. That's a great introduction. I appreciate that. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How, uh, how's everything else? How's everything in your world? Everything is fantastic. Um, I'm very excited that uh, for this story this week, we are joined by a very special guest. So that's pretty exciting. Since he started out in Baltimore in 2003, comedian and actor Larry XL has been performing in numerous venues and comedy clubs all over the United States and Canada as both a headliner and opening for the likes of big comedy stars like John Witherspoon, Roy Wood Jr., Ralphie May. Vanessa Mitchell and our personal favorite, Charlie Murphy. He has also been heard on XM Satellite Radio. In 2012, Larry XO made his acting debut, appearing in the holiday comedy uh, film Elfman, starring alongside Jason Acuna from MTV's Jackass, Mackenzie Aston from uh, the movies Iron Will and the show Scandal, and Jeffrey Combs from Reanimator and Star Trek fame. Larry XL, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Unbalanced Views. How you doing? Good. Really, really excited to have you here this week. And that was a, mu a much better introduction than I got. So um, I'm already a little jealous. <laughs> uh, it sounds actually better than it is. I was like, if you had accomplished half as much, we'd have a better intro for you. Uh, all right. All right. All right. Uh, so you didn't ask me for my bio. I had to give you my bio. <laughs> so, so with that said, gentlemen, uh, Larry, we do a little thing to start each episode where I'd uh, like to ask each other, what's your sunshine this week? Larry, as the guest, you should go first. Got any sunshine? What's my, my sunshine? What, like, what do you mean by sunshine? <laughs> what's what's good in your life? <laughs> oh, 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 that. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, I performed at Atlantic City on Sunday. That was a good, uh, like, I was uh, performing at Atlantic City. Uh, yeah, just uh, that and just, you know, Oh, uh, my sunshine this week is I had uh, a very cool uh, – every time I go, like, out of town, like, if I know of a used bookstore, I like to hit it. Um, and my bookstore find of uh, the year is this uh, coffee table book uh, about the, the, the Jacksons. I just yeah. saw this. Nice. Somebody posted this on um, – It was me. Somewhere on the socials. Oh, was it you? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I was like, I, yeah. I saw, I was like, somebody, somebody posted. I saw that. I was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, very, yep. very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big music, uh, music and pop culture history buff. So anytime I get a book that uh, kind of does a deep nerd dive into anything that I'm remotely interested in music wise, I got to pick it up. Very cool. Yep. I just, uh, I just sent my uncle for his birthday a, uh, a really cool book that was, um, it was basically Michael Oaks. Um, I think it was like the, his hundred favorite uh, record album, like covers. And so the whole book was just like uh, album art 
and sort of the story behind it. So it included things like uh, Andy Warhol's Velvet Underground cover and, you know, I mean, the banana and all that. Yeah. If, there, if, if, if there's if there's not an Ohio Players album in that list, uh, then it is highly suspect to me because those are some of the best album covers of all time. Well, I think it was all just like stuff that was in uh, Michael Oakes's collection. So uh, like Phil Oakes' brother, Michael. Um, so I think it's basically just his private collection. So I think it's probably pretty limited. I don't know. My uncle called me and was like, this, this is awesome. So, you know, I'm, I'm a good nephew. That's all I know. Okay. All right. So Mike, how about you? Sunshine. Let's see. Um, I picked up a few more clients, small business owners, helping them scale and grow in my consulting business. And then, uh, other than that, um, let's see. My daughter is doing well in school which is surprising because <laughs> uh, she's my daughter <laughs> fair fair point <laughs> with the exception of one thing which is spanish class but you know what can you do she's in the seventh grade um, all right that's it well good all right i have uh i'm gonna keep mine really simple because uh because my favorite football team uh shit the bed this week i decided to celebrate by buying a new hat I like it. So, uh, you know, there you have it. I've got a new hat that makes me happy. Um, and I'm wearing probably my favorite, uh, my favorite Star Wars t-shirt, the, uh, with all the bad guys as, uh, remaking the Queen, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody album cover. So, so speaking of album covers. Anyway. All right. So with that all said, um, since this is our fourth full story at this point, uh, every story sort of breaks down as we know, but, uh, fourth full story, we're going to do something completely different. We have thus far, well, not you, Larry, but we have thus far examined a story about a charismatic cult leader, a couple of African prince slave traders, and we did a murder mystery in Chinatown. And all of these stories have had at least one thing in common, and that is people are the main characters in all of them. Today, Uh our main character is, in fact, not a person. In fact, our main character is technically not even alive. It exists in that space somewhere between being alive and just being like a chemistry set. So our main character does not have the capacity to reproduce itself alone, though it does so once inside a host. Our main character in this story is called Variola Major, but at parties, it introduces itself as smallpox. So fun stuff. I, I thought you were going for like a Max Headroom thing. Now I'm this. disappointed. <laughs> We are going to do a story about smallpox. So it seemed like a perfect episode. Larry, you're a funny guy, and smallpox is no laughing matter. It seems like the perfect episode to have you on. We're going to need all your comic relief. Well, I mean, I don't know. know, Like, I mean, polio's making a comeback. (laughs) Why not smallpox? I I would be a liar if I uh, if I said that. You know, the, the past couple of years of, uh, of Hell Planet that we've been living on didn't influence my choices in any way. Um, you know, surely, you know, things like COVID have, have reinvigorated my mind to think about things like diseases in a way I hadn't uh, really much before. So um, anyway, so I'm going to start. I want to do a little background on smallpox because uh, it, it's a word we all know, but most of us don't know much about it. I apologize in advance because I will have to describe uh, at some point the symptoms and all that, but but bear with me. This is going to be a really cool story once we get to the story and not just the like, this is why smallpox sucks part of the story. OK, so are we ready? Are we ready for a a, a wild romp through smallpox? <laughs> it's going to be a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. All right. <laughs> so naturally occurring smallpox has been eradicated uh, globally. The last known naturally occurring case was in 1975. 
And the World Health Organization declared the virus was eliminated in 1980. So the last U.S. outbreak was in 1949, which is sort of terrifyingly recent when you really think about it. But the smallpox vaccine was the very first vaccine ever developed. In fact, it's where we get the name vaccine uh, because it was developed from cowpox and vaca being the Spanish word for cow. And I think it's really derived from the Latin, but like, so it comes from cowpox. Vaccine comes from vaca. So that's how the word even kind of comes into existence. And this was in 1796, which is insane. He, uh, Edward Jenner, who invented this, or at least is credited with it, he inoculated an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps with cowpox, and he recovered uh, with a much milder version of the illness. And uh, then he exposed this eight-year-old boy rather unethically to smallpox, but no infection occurred, right? Oh, it was 1796. You know, you don't have, like, <laughs> ethics. Um, they hadn't developed that yet. So, uh, at least not medical ethics, right? So uh-huh. Jenner wasn't really the first one to do this. He kind of noticed that milkmaids and things like that would get cowpox all over their hands, but then would be immune to the smallpox outbreaks. And a lot of like country doctors had kind of figured this out, but they'd never really like scientifically studied it. They just kind of, you know, deduced it intuitively. So Jen, that's why we credit Jenner as the guy, because he's the first one to like scientifically do it. He's actually a really interesting guy. He kind of dies poor and, and, in some ways, um, lauded for his discovery, but also vilified. A lot of people were really terrified of it, of the idea of, of uh, vaccination. And he like spent his whole life actually trying to vaccinate the poor and never really taking any, uh, like making any financial gains from the vaccine, which is again also kind of remarkable. So he dies like po- in poverty, but he like vaccinated a bunch of poor people, which is pretty cool. Anyway, by the late 19th century, people started to realize that vaccination did not confer a lifetime immunity like getting smallpox does. And so revaccination was required. By 1967, the WHO decided to launch a worldwide campaign to eradicate the disease to kind of eliminate these problems of re-vaccinations and all that. The whole project cost $100 million and it took about 13 years, which is about $800 million in today's terms, which is slightly less than the cost of signing Patrick Mahomes and Mike Trout to their contracts. So <laughs> a pretty good deal. Um and, you know, as I put here, you know, a little bit less than about a third of what the Pentagon spends every day. The project has since since it was enacted, saved roughly 150 to 250 million lives. So, you know, just like the Pentagon, um, it has been uh, really good for human uh, human life. Before vaccination, there was a predecessor called inoculation or for smallpox, more accurately, something called variolation. Smallpox probably is the greatest scourge in all of human history. Scientists estimate that it emerged alongside the very first agricultural societies, like 10,000 BC. And evidence of the disease even exists on like uh, mummified uh, Egyptian pharaohs, like Ramses V, who died in 1156 BCE. So, I mean, it's been around human beings pretty much as long as we have uh, lived in communities and stopped migrating, uh, you know, following our food. It was described in texts in like ancient texts in China, in ancient Sanskrit, uh, in India around the same time, around the 12th century BC. Smallpox was introduced into Europe sometime between the 7th and 5th centuries BC, or to put this like historically, somewhere between Nebuchadnezzar building the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and Homer writing the Odyssey and the Iliad. So like that's when smallpox comes into Europe. Come on, this is fun stuff. Smallpox... (laughs) I love how you just assume that we just know the exact dates 
uh, of those events is like, oh, right, right, that pinpoints it. <laughs> well, no, but give us some numbers. Damn. Well, I, remember. I gave you numbers. I gave like, between the seventh and fifth oh, centuries. Right. Guards of Babylon. I'm like, okay, I got to go to like, my <laughs> copy of Seven Wonders. I'm, I'm just, just trying to add a, a little color. Ago. I'm trying to add some color to the numbers. I mean, you know. All right. Uh, I mean, yeah, but uh, I mean, did, did the smallpox kill the dinosaurs too? I mean, damn. What's no, that? they weren't practicing yeah. agriculture. So, um, you know, had they? Uh, had I mean, I know I saw that documentary that was that. on back in the nineties, um, yeah, about the, the one the, who had the mama and the father the, that was not the mama. Yeah, yeah. Brontosaurus farms were the first things to disintegrate, you know, <laughs> like yeah, their bones stuck around, but all their, their farms and, and agriculture and, and, and chicken ranches just, you know, <laughs> didn't survive. It makes sense. I, I buy it, especially brontosauruses with chicken ranches. I love that. Uh, I love the idea. Um, well, you do know, you do know, you do know the modern day bird are basically descendants of dinosaurs, right? Yep. One hundred percent. And yeah. my favorite new discovery of the last, you know, decade or so when it comes to dinosaurs is that that they, you know, think that uh, dinosaurs now weren't just like plated with uh, with reptilian scales or whatever that they had feathers. They had feathers. So I mean, yeah. I love sort of thinking about uh, Jurassic Park uh, with. You know the T Rex, you know, sort of, you know, eating that man on the uh, on the the uh, porta potty, but like uh-huh. covered in chicken feathers. Yes, it just uh, really it makes that scene so much better. Well, oh. but maybe maybe they were maybe they were parrot or macaw feathers. God, I mean, uh, come on, I mean, they were in tropical climates. Sure, sure. Maybe they had colorful feathers, you know, to attract mates. Or maybe they were like a uh, sort of half feathered, something like one of those uh, those naked mole rats, but with like three or four feathers sticking out. That would be anyway. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Okay, so smallpox has devastated Western history. Obviously, it was responsible for somewhere between seven and a half and twenty-three million deaths in the Roman Empire uh, during one single plague, the Antonine Plague, which killed something like ten to thirty percent of the whole population. It's hard to know because poor people uh, didn't always get recorded. So uh, it's like, oh, oh, a bunch of rich people died. So from that, we have to deduce how many poor people also died. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, so it's always a, a fun mm-hmm. guessing game. Yes, the important um, and the unimportant. The Roman army, the Roman army during the Antonine Plague was reduced almost to extinction, which uh, led Marcus Aurelius to recruit soldiers from among gladiators, slaves, and bandits uh, for his war against the Germanic tribes. Which, I, by the way, I just love this idea. Of like, well, we have no more army, so we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to bring in gladiators, and we'll have to we'll have to arm slaves, and we'll have to arm bandits. Not like. Maybe we stop the war for a few years and uh, think about this for a minute. No, no, no. The war must go on. We have to find somebody who can fill these ranks. Who you got? Yeah, if your kids aren't finding, what do you care? <laughs> and as we all know from the uh, the great documentary Gladiator, his son was Commodus, who uh, was a, was a, a just a, a de- degenerate imbecile. So yeah, bad stuff. Yes, the move, great movie, true story. One of my favorite documentaries. <laughs> Um, it was a docudrama <laughs> with uh, yes. <laughs> what, was, what was his name? <laughs> it was a docudrama. Uh, Joaquin yes, Phoenix. Very true story. Very very true. Leaf. Very. Leaf. Leaf Phoenix, <laughs> who's uh, who who comes from around my parts. He uh, he grew up around here, just a few miles away from me. Well, a few like twenty five miles away from where I am right now. Uh, it actually Marcus Aurelius may have died from smallpox. We're not entirely sure. He was suffocated, uh, but he might have even been one he of was them. Suffocated. Yeah, I mean, I know in the docudrama, he certainly was, but, um, yes, yes. Anyway, the disease, uh, had a case fatality rate that ranged somewhere between 20% and 60% by the 18th century in Europe. So, okay. But yeah, you, you say that now, but I mean, come on, it's 18th century Europe. I mean, you could die from pink eye. Yep. That is true. Yep. That is true. Yeah, that is yeah. true. But it doesn't change the fact. I mean, 
you know, it's um, that if you get it, there's a one in five to three in five chance that you're going to die. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's pretty grim. Um, yeah. But I mean, that, I mean, that was on par with a lot of different things that were going around back then. Why does smallpox get like the top billing? Well, no, it's not really on par with other things. That's the thing. It is. What, it, what about the bubonic plague? Bubonic plague killed 25% of Europe. True. Yeah. But the case fatality rate is actually lower than smallpox. Smallpox and smallpox just keeps coming. You'll, we're, we'll see. We're, we're going to, we're going to see, but it's, okay, it's, and this is, it just, it spreads, it spreads farther and wider and it kills more people. And it's been around longer than the plague. Um, yes, okay, that, so, that outbreak of the plague was devastating. No question. Yes. And you didn't, and you didn't think to invite a doctor onto the, the program today instead of a guy who just go, goes around the country telling dick jokes. That is, uh, precisely why I want you here. Um, okay. this, this podcast needs more dick jokes. Okay. <laughs> um, and also, like I said, we're, we're going to get to some actually some like the history history. This is just like, this is just like a, I am trying to, as I tell Mike all the time, I'm just building the architecture to show, to say like, this is really bad. Here's some evidence that of like how bad. Yeah. yeah I, I, I get it. It's smallpox. I get it. It's bad. I don't like, I don't need a blow by blow. Yeah. It's a disease ah, that has lasted. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, you need a blow and, by blow. You have to. That, that's the that's the thing here. We have to understand how awful this is. Okay. So, and so, the time frame is Marcus. You're talking about the Roman Empire time frame ish. No, that's uh, that's not the what story time, we're telling. What, Just, what are you talking about? What, give me a year. Seventeen ninety six. Be patient. You're gonna listen. You're gonna love this. Just be patient. I'm this not is, doubting You're that. gonna get Mike. You're gonna get. Uh, you're gonna it. have. It is going to be your second favorite period in history, uh, you know, uh, behind maybe the, like, the 80s. Trump presidency or some nonsense. The um, 80s. This, okay, third favorite then. <laughs> Trust me, you're going to love this. All right. So 20 to 60% of the people that get it die. Uh, about a third of people who survive it go blind. Among infants, of course, fatality rates are higher. In London, uh, infant case mortality was almost 80%. In Berlin, it reached 98% during one outbreak. In 18th century Europe, about 400,000 people died every single year from smallpox, including five kings. In 1796 in London, the year the vaccine was produced, uh, like uh, tested for the first time, uh, smallpox was responsible for more than 18% of all deaths in total. Like that was all. So again, bubonic plague kills 25% of Europe over a couple of years. Smallpox was like routinely killing like 18% of the people that lived in cities in in Europe. So like year after year after year. <laughs> and, and instead of eradicating it, you know, it's like, you know, our country decided, hey, you know what? Let's like uh, take these blankets and give it to the native population so we can take their land. Indeed. That's right. I forgot uh, about that. In, indeed. We will uh, we will touch on the, the, the precursors to that today uh, a little bit. That was like the first that was like the pre pre Saddam Hussein days. I mean, that was like the original um, warfare. Yep, yeah, yep, germ that, warfare. That was the original germ warfare. Yeah, biological right agent. That's it. Yes. So, all right. So to bring this all the way to the present, right? So in, it was nineteen or nineteen sixty seven that the WHO launched this global uh, push to eradicate smallpox. So in the twentieth century, about three hundred million people died of smallpox. So to bring that. To like modern medicine, 300 million people died in the 20th century and about 500 million people. If you count the last hundred years from like eradication and you count back a hundred years from 1980 to 1880, 500 million people died globally from smallpox. Right. So again, bubonic plague just doesn't come close to this sort of this kind of devastation. Not so 
We're talking about a very serious, serious, serious problem for humanity. And it's an amazing success story on top of that, right? Because we've eradicated it. But obviously, we're not going to just talk about like smallpox, right? That's not, we're not just going to sit here and like throw smallpox numbers out. That'd be boring as hell and just like a terrible story. But I do want you to sort of understand because it's, it's, it's a disease on a scale unlike other things. Bubonic plague is the closest thing that we can relate it to. And that's just because of one plague outbreak that was so awful. Okay. So. We're going to use smallpox to tell a story. That's what we do on this podcast is we use a thing to tell a story about another thing. We're going to use smallpox to tell a story about, here you go, Mike, the American Revolution. All right. Because as it turns out, smallpox was a far more effective killer of American forces than the Redcoats ever were. Americans suffered something like 25,000 war deaths during the course of the whole war. And smallpox killed at minimum 130,000 Americans during the same time. Have either of you guys ever heard of the, uh, the, the American smallpox epidemic that ran from 1775 to 1782 or 1783 rather? Can't say I have. I mean, we've all gone through, uh, you know, an American education. You learn about the American revolution. Larry, ever heard of this? Uh, no, that did. I mean, if it, if I did, I've long since forgotten it because that would have been like, High school or college. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had never really encountered it until, uh, until, you know, I did. Um, so, okay. So we're going to take a little stroll through the American revolution. We're going to basically tell this story from the, the, the beginning of the revolution to the end of the revolution. There's a lot of stuff that we could also talk about, uh, in the rest of the North America with this, but we're not really going to do that. We're just going to focus on, uh, basically 14 colonies. So, all right, let's do some history. Just want to mention a couple things about the, the the present state of the disease before getting really, really into it. And I want to describe the symptoms, excuse me, and the specific treatment history, and then we'll go to the Revolutionary War era. But again, I mean, I, I apologize because, I mean, it's awful, but like, I think it's worth understanding when when we're talking about people that are suffering from this. And maybe this will help help Mike anyway, understand why it took me so long to write this script, <laughs> that thinking about this, what this disease does, and then writing about it, it's just... It was grim. I had to keep walking away and taking breaks. It was just too hard to kind of think about. So anyway, the eradication of smallpox represents kind of peak optimism in mass health programs like this, right? Officials really were like optimistically saying uh, after eradicating smallpox, they kind of thought they're like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this for everything. We're just going to like wipe out diseases. And, and literally some of them wrote articles about a world without viruses, which is bananas. So uh, here's the thing. Smallpox is eradicated, but even that might not be secure today. Like smallpox could still come back. And here's why. Because we kept samples of it. Yeah. Yes. Do you know, you know this? This is wild. So the WHO established that there were going to be just like two repositories for the virus. So scientists could study it and maintain it and, uh, I mean, develop more treatments if they ever needed them. One of those repositories was the CDC. And the other is a place called Vector in what was then the Soviet Union is now uh, Novo, Novosibirsk, Russia. Um, I apologize to our Russian listeners, of which we have, I think, six. So that's that's cool. It's impressive. Um, so, so my apologies, Russian speakers, because uh, I know I butchered that. Anyway, the plan was to destroy all the remaining live virus samples in 1999. It was going to be the first time in human history that human beings knowingly annihilated another species. However, about two months before that, and Larry, do you know this or you just sort of know it but vaguely? Two months before the destruction date, the United States announced it was going to retain some of the virus for further study. And so, of course, then Russia said, well, if they're not destroying theirs, we really don't feel great about destroying ours because 
you know, um, you know, they, they gestured at everything. So there've also been rumors about rogue samples like obtained on the black market and whatnot, but there are only three like sort of well-documented occurrences of verifiable kind of concerns since 1999. One was in 2019, there was an explosion and fire at Vector, the Center for Virology and Bio- Biotechnology. Um, but it occurred in a different part of the facility. Uh, in the American press, a lot of people did some hand-wringing about maybe we shouldn't trust the Russians with this virus. Maybe they don't know how to keep it secure and all this stuff. But that's really, it was just sort of propaganda primarily because the fire happened somewhere else. It was no big deal. The samples were never really at risk. But it renewed debate and has, like to the present, renewed debate about whether we should just destroy the samples and move on uh, in a world without smallpox. The other uh, verifiable event uh, was in 2014, and this is, again, just wild. Um, A cardboard box containing smallpox smallpox samples was discovered at the National Institute of Health uh, campus in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm. The box was discovered by FDA inspectors who were doing inventory because they were basically taking over those offices. And so... The vials had just been cold and stored in like a cold unit since the 1950s, which raised some concerns because it's supposed to be stored in liquid nitrogen. And it was basically like just in a cardboard box in the fridge. So that's, that's just been sitting around since the 50s, which is really good. Yeah, that, 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 that is, some, that's going to be some really foul, nasty smelling smallpox. <laughs> Next to the milk. Next to the milk. Yeah, I don't, the, uh, I don't think baking soda is going to be enough to keep it uh, at bay. Uh... I I mean I just I just love the kind of uh the 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 duality of we globally trust the CDC to be one of the o- only two places in the world to securely store the store this and study it properly and all that stuff but also the same government that runs the CDC is the one that's like well we just had this cardboard box sitting around for 50 years and luckily nobody took any and it's like you you think I mean like you don't really you, know it was somehow lost it you know yeah you don't know it's just been sitting there for 64 years or whatever the third was a similar discovery at a and this is also interesting a former swiss serum and vaccine institute in bern switzerland a place that you might notice is neither the soviet union nor the united states so that's also kind of interesting but the swiss have never done anything bad um they are nothing if not uh just a good honest dealing financial specialists um, who've never been involved in anything nefarious. Um, That's right. Don't look that up. Uh, (laughs) So I want to read this brief quote about the NIH discovery from the journal nature, because uh, it's just bananas. So the NIH said, or quote, the NIH says that it plans to conduct a comprehensive search of all its laboratory spaces as soon as possible, but such a move may not be sufficient to find other forgotten stocks. If they exist, says Peter Jarling of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Frederick, Maryland. Quote, virologists are pack rats. Disorganized scientists could have squirreled samples away in unexpected places decades ago. You could lock down and count every ampule and still not find it all, Jarling said. He found out about the NIH discovery when White House officials were discussing how and when to notify the WHO, end quote. So that's cool and good. <laughs> and, and also, I do have one other question. What? Um, what does any of this mean? <laughs> like, what does this mean? Um, why were they wondering how to notify the WHO, for one thing? Like, you just call them up and say, hey, we found some smallpox. Oopsies. 
Um, and also, <laughs> when? When should we let them know? I mean, I just wish I could know what happened in that meeting when they're like, so, okay, so we've got these samples that nobody knows about. Uh, I mean, we'll have to let the WHO know at some point, but uh, yep. when do we do that? And what should we do in the meantime? It's uh, it's like every case where a celebrity was found dead. Like whoever finds him is like, should we call the police? Not yet. <laughs> you know, if you, if you look at any documentary, any one of those, uh, the, the final 24, whatever they call those things, like the last day of every celebrity's life, it's like they're found dead. And then they'll call the agent. Yeah. Call his agent. Call his agent. Right. See what we should do. Right, right. Yeah. What? All signs of a perfectly good, healthy society, I think. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 clean the place up first. Yeah, make sure make sure my prints aren't on it. I, I, I guarantee you, somebody just like you know is like, we, should we eradicate smallpox? Well, no. Let's put a couple of vials away because we never know if we're gonna have like a war of the world situation where we have to, you know, fight off an alien invasion with a common cold or something. Sure. Or just like we need to like throw all of our diseases at it. Sure. We've uh, we've got these blankets on hand just in case. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the variola major virus is transmitted through tiny droplets in the breath. Words, uh, the word droplets is one that I've heard an, an awful lot in the last couple of years uh, and probably heard like twice in my entire life before COVID. Uh, so I'm very familiar now with the droplets in breath uh, whole idea, but um, it's also transmitted through scabs or other bodily uh, secretions. So variola in its aerosolized droplets only survives like 24, 48 hours outside the body. But in scabs or on clothing or in cloth, uh, it's a really hardy virus. Depending on heat and humid- humidity, it can survive somewhere between two and four months. So this makes it especially dangerous, right? Um, typical incubation period, uh, once it's in your body, takes between 10 and 14 days. Uh, the first symptoms commonly occur, like uh, appear like 13 days after exposure. So that two-week time frame, we're going to sort of talk about a few times during the course of all this. So uh-huh. early symptoms re- re- like look like a bad case of the flu, right? Headache, backache, vomiting, fever, general discomfort, even anxiety are, are common. Um, the headaches and backaches are, are excruciating. And the anxiety that it causes can actually be so severe that many victims actually die within days just from the stress before they even develop like the, the characteristic pox on their skin. Which again, I mean, it's just wild to me that a virus can make you so anxious that you like that you die from it, um, that you die from anxiety. The uh, the first fever, that initial fever, usually uh, vanishes within like the first after first like maybe two days, one to two days, and this actually fools a lot of people into thinking that they had the flu or a cold, and a lot of people will go back about their business on the third day, uh, which is great because they're highly contagious. Mm-hmm. By the fourth or fifth day, however, the rally has ended and the fever creeps back up and the first sores, uh, smallpox sores, start to appear in the nose, the throat and the mouth. And uh, and again, like patients now are extremely contagious because, of course, sores in the throat and stuff and in the nose droplets coming right through that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Within just like 24 hours, the sores will spread from the mucous membranes to the skin surface. For some people, the sores will erupt inward, like subcutaneously. And for these people, they will die uh, almost like within within days. Uh, they will bleed from the gums, the mouth, the eyes, nose, from other orifices, as all their sores are internal and just, you know, uh, it's it's awful. Most times, of course, the rash erupts outward into painful pustules, and they most often will concentrate on like the worst possible places, palms, forearms, soles of the feet, 
and then face, neck, and back. Basically, like all the most painful places you could possibly get them. I mean, soles of your feet. I mean, you just imagine, right? So here's when you can actually start to make a prognosis about how it's going to turn out. If the the pustules are um, separated, they don't run together into like a single mass, the patient will usually survive, although they can go blind, like a third of them do. Um, confluent smallpox is when the pustules all kind of form one solid kind of oozing mass. And about 60% of patients with this presentation will end up dying. For some, uh, the sores in the mouth and the throat will make it make drinking so painful that dehydration becomes a real common problem. And when the pustules begin to crack and run, the smell is, as I found this missionary in Brazil who described it as, quote, so loathsome and evil smelling that none could stand the great stench, end quote. If permanent damage to the eyes occurs, this is where it happens when the sores start to, to like, run, crack and run. When they do this, uh, secondary bacterial infections can begin to take hold. And Larry, this comes to your point about the 18th century. So like you're just covered in open sores at a time where, you know, they have not really invented bathing for Europeans. Um, so, you know, it's pretty bad. It's pretty dangerous. After like two full weeks of suffering, and I, I want to be crystal clear that the suffering people with smallpox go through is unimaginable, right? I mean, it is, it is, this is the worst possible way to die as far as I can tell. When they have all these pustules and they start cracking and bleeding, people's skin will start to stick to whatever surfaces they're touching. So people are too weak and sore to move. So they're laying down. But when they try to like roll over or whatever else, their skin will often stick to whatever they're laying on and just peel off when they move. William Bradford of uh, from the Mayflower, you might have heard him, he observed the suffering of the Narragansett people and wrote, quote, they lie on their hard mats, the pox breaking their skin cleaving to the mats they lie on. When they turn them, the whole side will flee off at once. So people just like their, all of their skin will just peel off, um, which again, the pain is just would be unimaginable. Uh, and even earlier witness from Brazil reported, quote, pox that were so rotten and poisonous that the flesh fell off in pieces of evil smelling beasties. Ugh. So, yeah, pretty awful. Anyway, after about two weeks, uh, the scabs finally mercifully begin to form. And those who died typically did so sort of between the 10th and like 16th day. After 16 days, the risk of death starts to drop significantly. Um, as the scabs form, of course, they itch, but scratching just tears open painful, unbroken pustules. So this stage presents its own kind of torture as you're uh, dying to scratch and itch these things, but doing so will cause you more excruciating pain. So after four weeks, scars have replaced the scabs on the body and only the, the, the sores that were on your palms and your soles remain. They're the last one, the first ones to appear really. And the last ones to heal people's feet had hardened from like years of walking barefoot and intensive labor, things like that. Uh, sometimes their entire soul would slough off. Uh, at this time, which would then slow their recovery time uh, by a matter of weeks or even several months. So patients will remain contagious until the very last scab falls off. And the full course of the disease usually runs somewhere between, you know, a month and five weeks or so. I mean, like just everything about this. Well, I'd like to apologize for anybody who is trying to eat during <laughs> this uh, podcast, especially if they're eating any cream based soups. Oh. Uh, I'm really sorry. That's, oh. you know, um, the graphic detail that he's uh, going into uh, with, with this. 
This is also why this is also why I never watched uh, Doctor Pimple Popper uh, on the the learning. Oh, so, so so gross. I mean, no. Yeah. I, again, my 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 point here. My point here. This is once we get through this, I'm not going to talk about like the specifics uh, again for the rest of the thing. I just when I talk about the people suffering, I I want you to you know to have something more than a vague idea of. Yes, I understand what suffering is because mm. I live in the 21st century and I had COVID. I had, I had COVID and one and, and Starbucks got my drink wrong. No, no, no. I mean, or, or no, I mean, no, not, that is not to say no people, obviously people suffer very much like today, but like, this is oh, like yeah. a very unique yeah, kind, get, of, kind of get, agony that people your, you know, deal coffee with. Wrong, man. That's fucked well, up. And, um, like, and I, I hate to bust your bubble, but people still suffer like that, you know, in second and third world countries too, when they don't sure. have access to like, you know, water, like, uh, <laughs> medical help and water and, and, sure. and you know in sterile environments yeah no for sure i hold on i'm sorry i apologize my dog my extremely elderly dog needs to go out sorry about that she just wanted out of here i guess i i guess she didn't want to hear any more about smallpox <laughs> yeah all that smallpox talk she's like yeah hey, i gotta get there's out of here a, uh, there's the dog's appetite too yeah well she is she is 17 years old and uh and not doing not doing spe- spectacular and uh, so she's probably listening to this going like, oh, yeah, I don't need to do this right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, you think they suffered? Anyway, all right. So uh, case fatality rates are difficult to kind of ascertain sometimes because there seem to have been wildly different rates uh, of fatality at different places and at different times. And we can't really say for sure what the reason is for these things. So for just a few examples, an outbreak in 1721 Boston had a case fatality rate of about 15%. In 1792 in Boston, there was another outbreak that had a case fatality rate of 30%. So like 70 years apart, same city, but double the fatality 70 years later, right? No real rhyme or reason. In 1787 in Scotland, a full one third of all victims died. And more recently in Madras, India in the 1960s, the case fatality rate was 43%. Uh, you know, it's just, so there's just really no rhyme or reason. I'm just, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the reason that, you know, the, the, it, it's so flush, like the numbers fluctuate is because it's the 17, 1800s. There are no calculators. That means somebody had to go and manually count. And I get, you know, after like the first like four or five thousand, you're like, you know what? I'm just going to round up and just guess the number, uh, for like, yeah, yeah, it's it 14 grand. You can't ever, yeah, yeah, I did it. You want to go back and check? Nope. <laughs> maybe yeah there, there's probably it. some there's probably some truth to yeah. that there, that is probably there's probably some truth to that um although in some cases like in 1721 boston the city's pretty small there's not that many people so calculating that rate is pretty easy because you're like you actually can like name them all um but again when, when you're talking about like oh only 200 people caught it 15 percent of them died you're like well 200 people you can count that we're not talking about having to figure out like you said 14,000 or whatever so yeah for sure for sure. Some of the circumstances depend too. Um, it's harder to calculate things probably in the middle of a war than it is to figure out things like at peacetime, right? So we also know, of course, like this is kind of obvious, but case fatality is found, uh, the highest case fatalities are like for those who are under the age of one and over the age of 45 and among anyone who's pregnant. And I found this one really staggering, like uh, about 75% of early term pregnancies and early term in this case, we're dividing pregnancy in half, like the first four and a half months to the, the second four and a half months. The um, About 75% of early-term pregnancies would spontaneously abort. About 60% of late-term pregnancies did too. So 
Um, so the, you know, an unbelievable number of, of pregnant people. If you get smallpox, you lose the, the, like you lose the pregnancy of the babies that were born. 55% would die within the first two weeks. 50% of pregnant women who were infected would develop something called hemorrhagic smallpox, which had a case fatality rate over 96%. So half of the pregnant women that get smallpox develop this specific kind of smallpox. And then 96% of those die. I mean, it's like, so like you inevitably, if you get that, you die yeah. and it's a 50, 50, right. And then finally famine, malnourishment and thirst uh, also lead to worse outcomes. And the thirst part is especially telling because it's a disease that makes it incredibly hard to drink. Ugh. So people get dehydrated just because it's so painful to drink anything. And then that actually increases the chances that you're going to die. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a tough thing there. So now, okay, we have a good idea of understanding what we're dealing with here. So with all that out of the way, uh, we're going to begin our revolutionary tale with a quick story about a guy that I assume you've both heard of. Hmm. Although the original diary pages are damaged, so we don't know the exact date, uh, we think that around September 28th, 1751, a 19-year-old named George Washington left Virginia with his 31 or 32-year-old half-brother Lawrence and sailed for Barbados to... Um, to try and ease Lawrence's consumption. You know, this is back in the day when, like, if you got tuberculosis, which is consumption, they'd usually send you to some different climate thinking the a better climate would resolve that problem, right? So what was his health plan? Like, <laughs> I, 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 what kind of PPO did he have that he's like, oh, you're sick. You know what? You need to go to Bahamas. Uh, yeah, well, it, you don't need a health plan when you're as rich as the Washingtons. Yeah. So the brothers in the ship makes that a rough journey. They they As they got close to the Caribbean, they... Uh, they faced like a full week of like gale force winds and, and terrible storms. There was a hurricane that had, that was, uh, as they were arrived, as they were getting close to Barbados, a hurricane was striking Jamaica and Cuba, um, to, like just ahead of their arrival. So, uh, the, the storm was probably passing right over in front of their path as they came through. And so, you know, they got pelted by the, uh, the outer bands of the rain and wind. And they finally kind of disembarked on November 2nd, 1751 in Bridgetown, Barbados. The next day, um, Washington, still very much reeling from a rough journey, was uh, invited to dine at the house of a prominent planter and slave trader named Gedney Clark. Washington, George Washington, that is, wrote in his diary that he like didn't want to go, but he kind of, as he said, we went myself with some reluctance as the smallpox was in his family. So they went to, to have dinner with this guy. Uh, you know, knowing full well that they had smallpox in the house. Oh. So that was smart and good. Uh, and, and again, like just further evidence that we should listen to what these guys wrote in, you know, the 1780s and be like, no, that never needs to be changed. These guys were smart. Whatever. I, I hope the slaves put smallpox in their food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, I'm sure they were social distancing and wearing masks too. Yeah. This, uh, episode has a much sadder story, but yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, on November 17th, Washington recorded in his diary, quote, was strongly attacked with the smallpox. So, you know, you can kind of figure this out that that 13 day window, it's exactly 13 days later, right? Like he's, or 14 days later, rather, he's writing that he's, he's got a case of the small, he's got smallpox. So that incubation period, you know, like 12 to 14 days, like right there. So we know he, he got it at that house. I mean, we can pretty much uh, assume that he, he didn't actually write any more entries in his journal. Uh, so that was November 17th. The next journal entry is December 12th when he had recovered enough to write. So, it kind of wiped him out for a month. The climate did not uh, help his brother either. On December 22nd, George decided to return to Virginia 
And uh, Lawrence decided Bermuda might offer better results for him. So he went off to Bermuda. Lawrence eventually returned back to Virginia in July of 1752 in order to die at home from tuberculosis. Uh, for his part, though, it seems like George Washington may have dealt with a, a milder strain of the virus because he was left with just a few light, like mild scars on his nose. And most people who sort of go through the pox end up, you know, like they're pocked, they're pockmarked, you know, for life. Um, and he, he barely was. So how much George Washington's experiences with smallpox may have influenced his decision making in later years? We obviously have no idea. Um, but we do know because of his previous bout with smallpox, uh, he had lifetime immunity to the disease because once you get it, you never get it again. It also, there's a possibility that it might have left him sterilized. We don't know for sure. There's some conflicting claims about this, but um, we know that he and Martha never had any children. And there are some claims that he fathered an illegitimate son named West Ford with an enslaved woman named Venus who uh, belonged to his brother's widow. But even this is a bit unclear. Um, there's some pretty, there's some solid evidence, but then there's some evidence that doesn't match up. We just don't know yet. But anyway, Martha also may have been injured during the birth of her fourth child from her first marriage and could have been unable to get pregnant again. So, I mean, there's a number of reasons that they may not have had children. It's hard to say. We we don't have the DNA evidence like we do with uh, with the child rapist uh, Thomas Jefferson, where we have the DNA, right? Like he raped children when he started forcing his uh, the, the slave Sally Hemings to sleep with him. She was 14. Ah, I didn't know that. I didn't know how old she was. I knew he had sex with his slaves. I mean, like, yeah, but like, first of all, like, I'm saying it's it's still horrible, but usually in that era, by the time you're 14, you had a house and a mortgage and three kids. And like, <laughs> well, that's because you could buy a house with a handshake. You died at 30. You died. If, you were lucky if you lived at 32 <laughs> in that era. Well, so yeah. okay, so there's a weird thing about this because yeah, there's the whole like life expectancy is like 40, but if you if you account for all the people who die before the age of five, because, you know, like so many kids just died, right? Like they just didn't make it till past five. But if you like, you take them out of the equation, you go, okay, well, let's not count all the kids that die in childhood diseases. Cause like, um, the, the life expectancy then was like 66, 67. So not, you know, it's kind of normal, you know what I mean? Not, not far afield from, uh, from modern standards. Wait, 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 life expectancy was 67. Well, it was, yeah, it was in the upper sixties. If you, if you, when? if you, here? in this, like in the revolutionary era, if you, there's a caveat. Made it past childhood. If, right. For, for people who make it past the age of five, life expectancy is about 66 or 67. So if you can get through the childhood diseases, you, like on average, would live to like a normal, like length of, a normal life to 66 or 67 as an average. So again, that's a huge caveat because of course, like, you know, the reason life expectancy is like 40. It's because so many kids died like under the age of five, but you factor those out and you just say, okay, so for everybody who like everybody who celebrates a sixth birthday, how long did they live? The, the life expectancy goes up to like 66 or seven. So, um, so, you know, I mean, again, it's not like modern, but it's not that far off. I mean, it's much more, you know, people, people live longer than I think we usually think they did. You just, you just had to make it today to like first grade. If you get to first grade, you're good. <laughs> Uh, hold on. Hold on a second. You there? Yeah. All right. So what was the average life expectancy during the Revolutionary War? According to Google, it was 35. Okay. But again, yes. But if you factor, like I said, if you look at just children who make it to the age of six and then you say, okay, so for all the kids that make it to six, what's the life expectancy for them for the rest of their life? 
for all of them, their life expectancy is like 66, 67. So no, 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 there's no, what it could have. Well, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. But what I'm saying is that the, what, what I'm saying is that no, yes. If you're averaging everybody together, sure. Yes. Very short life. Yeah, look, it's, However, it's easy. It's easy to, it's easy to cook the numbers when you, when you like, like you take away like important parts of data. It's like, well, you know, if, if you, if you take all the kids that died at five, that life expectancy is things. Well, you know what? If you exclude the people that work backbreaking jobs seven days a week, the life expectancy goes up to a hundred. No, no, right. I'm not trying to do that. That's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah. What I'm saying is that everybody that lives to adulthood has a pretty good chance of seeing their sixties. You know what I mean? Like anybody that's still alive as an adult has a good chance of seeing their sixties. Part of what brings that average down so far is the tremendous number of, of infant mortalities and childhood deaths. So that's what skews the number. So, so if we just, ex- hey, hey, don't, for, don't forget, don't forget senseless gun violence. <laughs> well, the revolutionary, I mean, you know, you could shoot at each other from like 10 paces and miss. So, uh, cause muskets were, you know, yeah. wildly ineffective, but, uh, wildly inaccurate. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not trying to cook the numbers here. Yeah. That's not what I'm, that's not my goal. My point was just that, that what you're saying is absolutely true. Yeah. But also, but also when we're dealing with anybody who's, when we're dealing with anybody who is, who is, has reached adulthood, they're likely to live till, till their sixties. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if they can get that far, I'm not trying to exclude most people who died young because of, because their lives were awful. I'm only trying to exclude the children who died as mostly as infants and, and as newborns. Uh, from what are now preventable diseases. So like cut them out just to get a sense of, okay, so sure the average is correct, but like, but if you become a teenager, what, what age can most people actually expect to live to? It's not 35. It's like 65. So, you know, again, it's like that average is brought down just because of the tremendous number of people who die. I'm not excluding even women who die in childbirth, which again was an extraordinarily high number. Only children, like only cutting out the, the kids that die of childhood illness. But anyway, that's not the point. My point was just to say that Thomas Jefferson was a child rapist. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to be inflammatory here. I'm only saying Thomas Jefferson was a bad person and we shouldn't honor him. That's all. Nothing. Not trying to inflame anyone's passions. I'm only saying Thomas Jefferson was a piece of shit. That's all I'm saying. Just, just a neutral statement about Thomas Jefferson. Noted piece of shit. Sorry. So just, just throwing that out there. Uh, anyway, Washington's immunity is experienced in acquiring it probably paid, uh, would play some role in his later responses to smallpox during the revolution. And that's, that's why I brought him up early because, you know, he's one of those people who is immune. So the biggest issue, uh, facing a population when variola arrived was the degree to which the population was vulnerable to it, right? The single most important determinant of vulnerability was like prior exposure. Variola needs a constant stream of fresh hosts in order to propagate itself, right? Um, like any other virus, it, it needs just a stream of people to jump from person to person. That's kind of like religion. Just like, just like religion. Um, the story of smallpox, uh, then like the story of smallpox outbreaks rather is then uh, a, a human story, right? It's a story of human interaction. It's a, stu- a story of human connections. That's why I wanted to use smallpox to sort of tell the story because, you know, I think by looking at this virus and how it spreads, we actually can kind of learn something about how people interacted and spread, right? Like we learn something about connections because the disease doesn't get, it, it doesn't just like lay dormant in the soil, right? It, it's mostly transmitted by interactions. Runs out of fresh hosts, it dies out. So the greater proportion of people in a community or a group with prior exposure 
the less vulnerable that community or group is to widespread outbreaks. So, for example, by the middle of the 18th century, smallpox was endemic in the towns and cities of England. Basically, anything that was a uh, uh, anything sort of larger than a hamlet, you know, from village on up to town to city in England, had regular smallpox outbreaks. And so, this kind of ends up meaning that there's a, a widespread immunity. Lots of people die. 18 percent of the population dies from smallpox, like 18% of all the deaths rather are caused by smallpox. But for all the people that survive, there's lifetime immunity. So when you constantly have the disease in circulating the community, you sort of constantly have a pretty good percentage of the population that's immune to it. And this matters for a variety of reasons. It means there's people who can care for the sick. It means there's people who can like continue to make things function properly when there's an outbreak and all of that stuff, right? Like that's why one of the reasons why it matters. It also matters to the people that live because, you know, they get to live. But it also, this all means that like immunity was relatively widespread uh, among England's adult population. So given the frequency of smallpox epidemics throughout Europe, it's actually pretty likely that immunity was somewhat dispersed throughout the European continent. In North America, neither smallpox nor immunity were nearly as widespread. So partly this was due to there being fewer and smaller cities and towns uh, there was less infrastructure co- connecting towns and cities, right? So there was just less kind of traveling with with diseases back and forth. It still happened, but just less of it than in Europe. And there was even less natural increase and uh, and immigration than in Europe. So uh, again, don't get me wrong here. Smallpox epidemics in the uh, the two and a half centuries since European contact had spread far and wide throughout North America. By the late 18th century, only Alaska, Western Canada, Canada, Western Canada. And uh, the upper portion of California were like the only places in North America that had avoided the smallpox altogether. And we can't even be completely certain of that. Uh, but nevertheless, outbreaks were usually localized or regional, and then they would die out. Given that immunity does not get conferred generation to generation, right? It's not passed on in your genes. Unless smallpox becomes endemic, widespread immunity would sort of always remain elusive because each new generation presented a whole fresh bunch of hosts for the disease, right? Mm -hmm. So on the eve of the American Revolution, the outbreak that was most recent in people's memory had occurred in relation to the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War of the 1750s and early 60s. So indigenous populations in New York, the Great Lakes region, the Pesden Hope, and eastern Canada, they had suffered devastating outbreaks related to that war. In the Ohio Valley, British soldiers had intentionally tried to spread the disease using smallpox-infested blankets. Uh, in order to put down Pontiac's revolt, a lesson the Americans took some notes and tucked away in their pockets. Uh, in 1759 and 60, the Cherokee War in the uh, south in the southern colonies spread the disease to Cherokee, to Creek, and Catawba groups that were in and around South Carolina and Georgia. And the disease spread among sort of white and black colonists in South Carolina and Georgia as well. Around the same time, Chickasaws and Choctaws in the lower Mississippi Valley sort of became infected through their interactions with these other groups. So. Things actually went so far as groups of Apache in Western Tejas uh, in 1764 were infected. So it spread from these sort of these, the Georgia-South Carolina war to Catawbas uh, and, and Chickasaws who were a little farther, you know, along the Mississippi Valley, who then spread it through trade all the way to Western Texas, right? By 1761-63, there were outbreaks in Mexico, uh, Baja, California, and Northern Sonora that were all related to sort of interactions ultimately tied back to the Apache. So this war, this Cherokee war in Georgia and South Carolina ultimately causes smallpox 
in Mexico, Baja, California, and Sonora. It's a story of human connections, I think. It's kind of uh, interesting. Anyway, back in the English colonies, by the 1770s, a whole generation had been born and grown up uh, completely sort of untouched by that outbreak, right? I mean, that ended in the 1750s. So by the 1770s, you got a whole new generation. So you had a ballooning vulnerable population by the outbreak of the American Revolution. And the English colonies probably understood smallpox actually better than anybody else in North America. In fact, other than syphilis, smallpox was the, the best understood uh, disease of the day. Uh, everybody understood syphilis pretty well, too. But, um, but that's, a, that's a story for another podcast. When um, outbreaks occurred, colonists understood that there were basically only... Hey, can, I, can I come back to the syphilis podcast? That one sounds way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I want details, too. Same kind of details. Syphilis is the reason that they wore powdered wigs. There you go. Oh. Because syphilis causes baldness. And, uh, and so it used to be a sign. Oh, I thought it was a contraceptive. Yeah, it should be. Uh, no, if you, uh, if you get syphilis, you, you go bald. Men wearing wigs was, uh, basically like identifying yourself as having syphilis. <laughs> and so, um, but it was King Louis the 14th who was like, who got syphilis and was like, no, fuck that. I'm, I'm the, the damn golden sun king. Like I am going to wear the most outrageous, glorious wig that ever there was. Uh, the greatest wig that ever wigged the West. And, and because he's the, he's the freaking sun king, he, and he sets the fashion from Versailles. All of a sudden everybody's like, the king's wearing a wig. And so everybody wears a wig. And so like it becomes the fashion to wear your powdered wig because, uh, King Louis wanted to, uh, not be bald with syphilis. So, so there you go. There's your syphilis podcast. Wrapped it all up. <laughs> anyway, well, that is a human story of a different kind. Anyway, so there are two options available, right? When you had an outbreak, you uh, colonists could either quarantine or basically inoculate themselves. So isolation or inoculation. Um, but both offer kind of risks and rewards. Now, inoculation is not vaccination. There, there's a different thing. We'll get to that in a sec. Isolation obviously seems simple enough. You just avoid contact with anyone infected and contagious. But even though people kind of understood that the disease spread from person to person, they didn't really understand how that happened, right? Um, epidemics were usually attributed to supernatural causes, right? God did it because he's a cruel and vengeful deity that punishes us constantly. Um, or he's mad at us or I sinned too much or, or whatever. Like God sent smallpox to the village um, because, you know, there must be a witch, like whatever. But um, at the same time, Americans believed in quarantine, which is sort of counterintuitive. Like if God is sending the diseases, then there's nothing you can really do about it. But they still were like, but I know what we can do. We could just isolate and then not get it. So so there's a little bit of a disconnect, which is kind of hard to wrap our brains around because we understand germ theory and they didn't. And uh, so that's one of those things that I think is kind of maybe beyond us to understand how they could think both things at the same time, because it seems completely counterintuitive. The Massachusetts Bay uh, Colony passed an ordinance in 1647 that quarantine ships from Barbados uh, to prevent that quarantine ships from Barbados in order to prevent spreading the disease. They later passed an ordinance quote uh, to prevent persons from concealing the smallpox. So they obviously were dealing with a problem of people pretending that they weren't infected and sneaking ashore and then, you know, getting people sick. So, uh, so they required a, a red flag to be placed outside the homes of infected persons. Um, you know, a real scarlet letter as it were. And then uh, like in South Carolina, they did kind of the same thing, but they also required armed guards to be posted outside to prevent people from getting in, but also to prevent people from leaving, like leaving their homes if they were infected. Um, and uh, that's pretty great because, you know, the guards like turn people away from their potsy homes, but, but, you know, then like turn back around and like just 
you know, train the guns on the doors, which is fantastic. They passed similar laws in Virginia. Uh, Rhode Island set up a quarantine island off of Newport that they called Pest Island, which I think is fantastic. Um, mm. Oh, you got the pox off to Pest Island. <laughs> off you go. Um, uh, South Carolina established pest houses on Sullivan's Island to quarantine ships, especially slave ships from West Africa, where West Africa also uh, smallpox was endemic by the 18th century for sure. Anyway, and by the late 18th century, Pennsylvania was the only English colony that did not have any quarantine laws. Rather than quarantining in place, many residents took flight uh, in order to avoid the pestilence. During Boston's 1721 epidemic, 900 of the 10,000 or so citizens fled to the countryside. So uh, about 10% or just under 10%. Um, when smallpox struck again in the 1750s, about 2,000 of the 15,000 residents fled the city. The greatest risk with flight with, uh, was, of course, that many of the people who fled were already infected, uh, but because of the two-week-long incubation period, like they just didn't know it, even though they were already contagious oftentimes. They just thought, like, I've got a bit of a cold. I better get out of town. Um, on the other hand, inoculation was also a risky alternative to flight or isolation. So the practice had long been used in Asia and in Africa, I mean, for like hundreds of years. But it was completely unknown in Europe until the 18th century. Uh, several sources actually described the practice after 1700 for the first time. One of the most famous was from a Puritan minister, a pretty well-known Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, whose uh, his father, Increase Mather, was involved in the Salem witch trials. Um, not as a good guy that said this is silly. Uh, anyway, uh, he was involved in those witch trials, by the way, while president of Harvard. So again, Harvard has always done the right thing in all cases. Uh, Cotton learned of inoculation from his slave, uh, a guy named Onesimus. Yeah, that's right. Cotton, the Puritan minister, uh, learned about inoculation from his slave, um, who told Cotton that, quote, he had undergone an operation which had given him some something of your smallpox and would forever preserve him from it. So Onesimus then explained to him, they cut a, a slice, and in the case of Onesimus, it was a slice in his arm. They cut a, a about a quarter inch or half inch slice on their arm. And then they would take a thread and run it through a smallpox pustule and then drop the thread into that cut. That's sweet. That open wound. Cotton Mather convinced Zabdiel Boylston from as like Boylston Street fame to try the operation during the 1721 outbreak in Boston. During that epidemic, the case fatality rate in Boston was 15%. But among those that were inoculated, the case fatality rate was only 2%. So it worked. And to this day, scientists don't quite understand why it works, but it, it does. Uh, inoculation or, variola or variolation was a pretty terrifying prospect, right? Especially in those early years. And we're going to look at John Adams, who was inoculated in 1764, to sort of get a sense of what this would have been like. So doctors at the time, um, they would start patients on a strict dietary regime. In uh, Adams' case, you know, the different doctors did different things, but like Adams was prepared, quote, by a milk diet and a course of mercurial preparations till they reduced me very low. So they made him drink mercury until he was essentially poisoned. <laughs> um, and was so like, so you could have milk and mercury to prepare to be inoculated, which seems like it would make things worse, but somehow they still managed to come through. Adams went in with his brother. They were inoculated together. And like, he wrote to Abigail, his then fiance, and said, that's wonderful. Like he and his brother took regular vomits, um, which is not <laughs> surprising vomits. given that they're drinking mercury, but even worse, it wasn't, well, it wasn't even the mercury that did it. Like he wrote to his, he wrote to Abigail and he said like, and obviously he was like in pretty good spirits. He wrote and said, did you ever see two persons in one room? And this is a wild word. Mm -hmm. He says, 
Ipecacuanad, as in they took Ipecac together. You're taking peyote. I assure you, they make merry diversion. It's peyote. We took turns to be sick and to laugh. Yeah. He would be sick while I laughed at him. Then I would be sick while he laughed at me. Yeah, that's they were they were, they were college age at that time. <laughs> yeah, about that, and and also, and also, I cannot emphasize enough uh, how there was absolutely nothing to fucking do in the 18th century. So, like taking every drug I could get my hands on back. Then. Laughing at a dude vomiting is like, I mean, that is like, uh, you know, about as exciting, <laughs> exciting a month as you're going to get. That was awesome. Years later, sitting around the fire, they're like, you remember that time we threw up? Kids today. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> they don't know a good puke when they see one. Boy, good times. Those years, we just don't have times like that these days. <laughs> I mean, so he le- some of his other letters to Abigail also sort of reveal that he's clearly suffering the classic symptoms of mercury poisoning, like his teeth are all becoming loose in his head. Um, his food, His food was limited to, quote, abstinence from all except the cool and the soft which i love like his doctor's like well so (laughs) while you're sick you're only allowed to eat things that are cool and soft like but they don't have ice cream they don't have refrigeration you know what i mean like uh so cool and soft i don't even know what that means exactly porridge cold porridge Uh, like shitty cold porridge yeah i mean good times man like you know you ever leave some like uh you ever leave some like grape nuts out yeah uh you know you put your milk in you forget you made them you come back you got a a bowl of grape nuts that's, you know, three times bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they're eating. That's apparently, I guess, the best they got. You gotta, you gotta understand, like, like the majority of the food back then was crap anyway. Well, sure. Fair point. I mean, you boiled everything. Yeah. I mean, they had to, they had to cook something over fire, right? So, uh, the steak, they had to eat steak. Yeah, but that was, that was for Sundays. That was your Sunday meal. Sunday meal. Yeah, sure. So, Larry, the first story that we did, we talked about, uh, it was in the 1830s. And one of the, the advances that was, that like sort of happened in that story was like people invented like the stove for the home. And, uh, and the guy we were talking about was like railed against the stove saying basically like he, he banned all roasted, like roasted meats in his home. Uh, because like they were, you know, essentially of the devil. Um, yeah. Whatever. Everybody, everybody, yeah, yeah. Everybody like, you know, hates like, you know, wants to like you know, put some satanic stuff on stuff that they don't understand until they they smell the, the you know the the mesquite fumes from like the the ribs hit their house like ooh what's that sure 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 yeah no he yeah for sure um he he was an interesting yeah anyway interesting guy he, uh they definitely uh they definitely boiled their crabs too they didn't steam them yeah yes, that's true so <laughs> inoculation as we said you know like cut yourself open and dragging a dragging a, a an infected thread through it so it's intentionally getting infected right but for some reason, inoculants suffer milder symptoms, typically, and they don't last as long. Doesn't do anything with how contagious they are, but, but it does generally, uh, you know, sort of make for an easier time. So it's still terrible, right? There's still a chance of death with inoculation, but this was the only alternative really to isolation, you know, deliberately infecting yourself. By the 1770s, some doc- doctors were using infectious material from other inoculees Rather than kind of wild caught virus, you know, they would get people who'd been inoculated and sort of survived it, and they would use scabs and things like that that were still infectious. Um, and they had kind of largely reduced or eliminated that dietary regimen, which, in all honesty, probably did more harm than good. I mean, mercury poisoning couldn't have possibly made it easier. Anyway, but they found that small, shallow incisions were also just as infective as the quarter-inch deep cuts that they initially did, which is pretty deep. I mean, a quarter-inch deep is a pretty deep cut. So by the time of the American Revolution, inoculation had improved 
greatly. It was much, much, much safer. You know, you didn't have to go through all the bullshit with the food. And, you know, they made just like a small cut. So it wasn't as bad. So whatever. Um, so it was a better sim- system. Uh, in fact, it's actually kind of, again, like, uh, as uh, Mike knows, I, I always have to point out why, like, when, when capitalism proves that it's bad. Um, so I just want to point this out that these innovations began in England by a guy named Robert Sutton and his two sons who, or I mean, I'm sorry, and his sons who figured out, like, who practiced, you know, making the smaller incisions, getting rid of all the, the dietary restrictions, all that stuff. But they kept, they did their best actually to try and keep all of their methods completely secret so that they could make more money doing this and then not telling anybody what their secret was and then like driving up business for themselves. But it's like, but this is a public good. And so shouldn't be like about the profit. It should be about like, you know, saving lives. So it always, I just want to point out that like, you know, how, how capitalism always tends to poison the mind of, of so many like the Suttons. Anyway, I'll leave that there. Just saying. Robert's son would uh, ultimately kind of publish the method in full in 1796, but most of the secrets kind of trickled out. Like people who were inoculated might just like tell somebody why he was better. And then they might go and talk to their doctor friend and say, well, this other guy did it this way. And so these things kind of come out as early as 1767. Some of the improvements were already being published in London and then they were being reprinted in New York by 1771. So again, these new methods we know were known by the time of the revolution. By 1776, when Abigail Adams and her children uh, traveled to Boston in order to be inoculated, she wrote and made no mention of any dietary regimens. They, she made no mention of painful, deep incisions or even any advanced preparations that her husband had had to do just like a dozen years earlier. So, you know, things have changed rather dramatically in just 12 years. Five day, days after her inoculation, on July 2nd, 1776, Abigail went to hear a public reading of the Declaration of Independence on King Street, which was the site of the famous King Street riot six years earlier, which uh, you might know as the Boston Massacre. Eight days later, uh, eight days after that, she was out in public again, even though she now had active symptoms of smallpox. She also attended public worship constantly, according to her own notes, uh, through early August. And this is really interesting because, like, when John was undergoing inoculation, she would sterilize all of the letters that he sent with smoke. And then John stopped writing when he was symptomatic. He had actually told her ahead of time he wasn't going to because he didn't want to pass the virus along on the letters. So even though they didn't understand germ theory, she certainly understood smallpox was contagious. So the fact that she was still going out in public after getting inoculated like and showing symptoms is kind of an odd choice to make because she understood that it was contagious, but like still just like went out and like, yeah, I went to church with everybody every day this, this month. Um, it, yeah, it's crazy. You, you, you had people that did that with COVID. Yes. But she was also like sterilizing his letters with smoke. So like she was taking these precautions, it's like precautions for me, but not for thee. Right. It's, it's, you know, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, the, the Karen of her era was hypocritical. Wow. Shocking. Fair, fair, fine, fair. Um, um, like, I don't want to be unfair to her specifically. Like even like unfair. unfair. She's dead. All right. (laughs) Well, Well, I mean, I only say that because I'm like, because doctors who like, performed inoculations also went out in public like after they had inoculated themselves so so she's not alone like this was a thing that people did but okay but like this is the, this is the late 1700s like literally there is 
there is no pizza delivery. There is no DoorDash. <laughs> there is no internet. There is no like TV. Like you, like if you were sick, you still had to get things done or else you were going to starve or go broke. So sure. But yeah, I mean, sure. But that's not what she's doing. She's going to church every day and like going to hear public readings. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like imagine, imagine like picture you're working at a sweatshop. And you call your boss, you don't call your boss. You actually go to work one day and say, Hey, look, I got uh, polio or I got smallpox. I need to quarantine. It's like, Oh, you're fired. If you take a day off for your smallpox, sure. Sure. work. <laughs> what was, uh, all, when all, while all this was happening, what was, uh, what was Dr. Fauci saying? Dr. Fauci was just a young man. Of, he was a young man. He was a young man. In then. Yeah, he was young. No, he was a doctor back then. Um, I met. I imagine he said different things. He was a young doctor, but he was a uh, there you, that was there's, that's one for you, Mike. That's one for you. He said different oh, things. All bunch of caca. All yeah, literally every different things. Like look, look, all the medical information you got back then, what like your was either from the the corner drugstore, which by the way <laughs> was putting cocaine in your in your soda. Yes, yes. Or 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 if you did have a do- like a family doctor. You might get some information from him, but only if you go visit, which was maybe like once every blue moon. So, you know, yeah, people were doing ignorant stuff, but they were way more ignorant than they are now. But, you know, the only difference is, is like we have no excuse for it because we got all this information at our disposal, which they didn't have. It should also be noted that we're talking about a time where like, you know, being a doctor just basically was like, I have decided that I am a doctor now. And you put a sign out <laughs> like I'm a doctor. I mean, that's not quite true, but it's mostly true. I mean, that's that's certainly how people books. became lawyers. And books. that's how you did a lot of things. What, what, what was medical school back then? Three months? There, there was no medical school. I mean, there there were three majors. Uh, I mean, there were still just three majors. You could uh, you could study like theology. You could study natural philosophy, which, you know, um, sort of covers all the sciences as they understood them. Um, natural philosophy, theology or. Uh, like, I think it was, I, I think, I can't remember what the third one was anyway, but like none of them were medicine um, because there was no such thing. I mean, we've look here, we're, we're the talking first, about a time where we're about a hundred years the from, first, from where uh, surgeons and barbers were the same people. Um, you were a surgeon barber and it was considered a super low class. Sure. It was considered a low surgeon class barber. trade. That yeah. is what the red and white stripes uh, on a barber pole are for to indicate the surgery and you know shave haircut and surgery um it was a yeah 1765 was what first law first medical school was established in 1765 yeah. college of Pen- please, Philadelphia. please tell me please tell yeah me we're gonna, gonna talk gonna about skip. that huh please tell me we're gonna skip the 1800s and the 1900s and go to like the smallpox farewell tour where you know they got together for one last you know uh big hurrah and did like a, a closing concert at Wembley Stadium or something. I don't know, you know, <laughs> a smallpox white album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the greatest. Um, on, on the ro- on the rooftop of like Apple of like Abbey Road Studios for like you know a crowd sure. of like thirty people. Sure, sure. Yeah, unfortunately, no. Uh, we're but like we're like I said, we're just sticking to one small little section, and we're All not. Right. We don't have too much more to go here. We just a couple couple more. No, not not too too much. Um, this is this is our introductory episode, really. So um, I also want to point out because this helps explain why, among uh, regular people, inoculation was often really seen as uh, it was pretty unpopular, right? Because like you get inoculated and then people would just like go out in public and then spread the disease to people who were not inoculated or immune, 
And so, you know, it's kind of a problem. Anyway, if a doctor came to town and set up an inoculation hospital, smallpox epidemics usually followed, right? Like that's kind of how this works. We know all about, uh, we're, you know, the political unrest, the riots, the tarring and feathering, the, the mass action, all that stuff that characterized the kind of revolutionary period in the colonies, right? We know this stuff. This is baked into our brains at this point. But mostly we know these actions directed at the crown or at parliament or uh, representatives thereof. But uh, this kind of spilled over into other mass action. The, the, the masses directed some of this energy at like inoculation hospitals. So in 1767, a guy named John Smith, no relation, set up an, inocula- uh, an inoculation shop in Yorktown, Virginia. People complain, quote, Smith has, hath rendered himself very blamable by suffering some of his patients to go abroad too soon, end quote. So in 1768, the Virginia magistrates shut him down after several college students took smallpox back to Williamsburg and caused a severe outbreak there. Riots broke out in Norfolk around the same time when two doctors, a guy named John Dalish and Archibald Campbell, both refused to stop inoculations at uh, Campbell's house. A crowd arrived at Campbell's home and torched it, forcing patients to flee in the middle of a torrential downpour. Of course, they were also inoculated. So like they're fleeing while suffering from smallpox uh, into the into the crowd. So it's sort of a, a dumb thing. In 1774 in Salem and in Marblehead, Massachusetts, rioters raised one facility, one inoculation facility, and then they forced another one to close. They also tarred and feathered four Salem men who had stolen clothes from the clothesline outside the facility in Salem. So they were like, these dummies like stole smallpox clothes and then like basically brought them into town and did whatever they did. So like that is a, that is worthy of tarring and feathering because not only did they steal stuff, but then they like spread smallpox where they went. (laughs) After the outbreak at Williamsburg, uh, the, the college outbreak in Williamsburg, the legislature passed uh, such stringent restrictions on inoculation that they essentially made it illegal. In South Carolina, they imposed a, a fine of 500 pounds on anyone receiving or giving inoculations within two miles of Charleston, which 500 pounds back then is about $134,000 in today's terms. So a pretty hefty fine to get inoculated or give one, right? Yeah, whatever. There are no credits worth back then. How are they going to find me to get that money? <laughs> yeah, but there's also like 12 people. So, so it's like, did you see Larry? Which one's Larry? Tall one? Oh, yeah, I know the tall one. The guy, the no, no, one but, tall like, guy. Yeah, if you find me 800 pounds, I'll just move to another state and change my name. You could do that so easily back then. But that's also, yes, uh, yeah. also true. Also true. I mean, granted, super easy granted, to, to get from Charleston to like Norfolk would take you like a month and a half, but you know, by horse, but still, yes, yes, absolutely. Still cheaper than paying the 800 pounds. That's very true. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, no, it was, yeah. it was, I mean, again, the point of this is to say, well, we're not going to make it illegal, but like, we're going to make it like impossible. Expensive. Yeah, we're going to make it impossible. And no doctor in their right mind is going to come to come to do them like and risk that kind of fine. Okay. Um, in New York, they kind of did the same thing. They banned the practice, quote, within the city and county of New York on pain of being prosecuted to the utmost rigor of the law, whatever that means. I always love like vague threats in the laws. It's just like, God, that could go. That means anything like that. Like upon the pain of pain of being prosecuted in the utmost rigor. I'm like, that means anything. They, they can do whatever they think of right now. New England was actually the most restrictive. Most New England cities banned inoculation outright. And then they imposed very strict quarantines on anyone that was infected. Inoculation bans were only lifted 
when epidemics broke out, which I think is pretty funny. They're like, nobody can get this procedure. And then like epidemics break out and they're like, some people can get this procedure now. That's (laughs) it's fine now for, but okay. No, it's all under control. Nobody can do this anymore. Like this is, you know, Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse wrote uh, of these policies, quote, new England is the most democratical region on the face of the earth. Yet the people voluntarily submitted to more restrictions and abridgments of Liberty to secure themselves against that terrific scourge than any absolute monarch monarch could have ever enforced, end quote. The middle colonies were the only exception to this general opposition to inoculation. And this is possibly due to the kind of extraordinarily high proportion of immigrants that came to Pennsylvania and like New Jersey, like Southern New Jersey in particular, and uh, even sort of Maryland to a degree. Inoculation hospitals flourished in Pennsylvania, up in upper New York State, and even in Connecticut in parts, uh, and Maryland. By and large, these were all very profitable, enter- like profitable um, enterprises. So inoculators ran ads far and wide, and they would run them in regions where the practice was either banned or severely restricted to try and draw customers from all over. As Mike would, this is when Mike usually chimes in and says, smart. Um, <laughs> in 1769, a Baltimore inoculator named Henry Stevenson advertised uh, in the Virginia Gazette, promising his patients quote, uh, were carefully and tenderly dealt with, end quote. He also offered discounts to slave owners who wanted to inoculate their enslaved laborers, though there were no promises made about the quality of their care or whether or not they would be treated tenderly. Similar ads from other practitioners ran throughout the restrictive colonies. Like You'd see these sorts of things all over. Uh, in New England, groups of wealthy friends would often travel together to the middle colonies in order to get inoculated. And this leads us to one of the big issues with inoculation. It was really expensive. Uh, the cost typically ran somewhere between three to four pounds per person in places like Baltimore and Philadelphia, which is like six hundred and thirty-five to hundred or to eight hundred and fifty dollars today. So, like your typical copay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty high. I mean, I, I don't know what your yeah. copays are, but like <laughs> that would be pretty high um, for for. I mean, I thought I was thinking about that when I was writing this. Like, yeah, what are what are copays? Because I'm lucky I have like state insurance, so. Most people, most regular working folks don't have like 850 bucks that they could just like throw into an inoculation. And most of them can't take a month off to go to, to, to like, you know, take a horse and buggy to another state to get inoculated too. Yeah. And then like the cost could be as high as like five or six pounds in New England. So somewhere between like 1050 and $1,270. So even more expensive there. And then of course, uh, it, it wasn't unheard of for it to be even higher during epidemics because like there were all these complaints about price gouging all the time. Uh, so it's like an epidemic, you know, epidemic rolls in. They're like, okay, we're going to do inoculations again. Everybody's like, yeah, it would have been five and six pounds, but like, since they won't let me practice, it's 12 pounds this week, bitch. Hmm. Um, you know, like, like it's, that's two grand, buddy, two grand, buddy. In addition to this high cost, people were incapacitated. Like you, you had to travel, but then people were incapacitated for like three to five weeks. Hmm. So. You know, working artisans, working like farmers and, you know, regular working folks can't afford to be away from work for so long. Certainly not by choice, right? Like, I mean, if they get the pox and they're down for five weeks, then, then so be it. But they can't like choose to make a three week journey and then take five weeks off while they recover and then make a three week journey back. Like, like who, you know what I mean? And then also pay a thousand dollars out of pocket. You, you know what I mean? Like just most people can't do any of that stuff. Benjamin Franklin, who, uh, was a firm supporter of inoculation wrote, quote, the expense of having the operation performed by a surgeon has been pretty high for tradesmen. It amounts to more money than he can well spare, end quote. Classic understatement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was doubly true for children, right? Like 
like who's going to pay this for their kids too? Like that's a, you, you know what I mean? It's a whole other thing too. Yep. So when smallpox ravaged, at least they're going to wait till after they turn five. <laughs> okay. So sorry, you say that, but it, like, if you go back um, to the beginning of the 18th century, the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century, there are like all kinds of like regular people, not rich people, like regular families do not name their children until they're like three, four five years old. Like, they just right. don't bother. Like, so you'll, if you go through like baptismal records, you'll see like a preacher will come to town and he, he like baptizes three children and they all get names and they're like, you know, nine, seven and you know, four and they're named when they get baptized. And then like, he's also doing like two funerals for the other kids, like posthumously, they've already been buried. So they're doing like a, you know, they're going to like bury these other two unnamed children. So yeah, that is like not uncommon. Like people knew they're like, well, I'm not going to get too attached to this kid because good chance he won't be here. So I'll well, get attached when he's five. Plus, I mean, you know, people were getting married at 16 and they were like, you know, like popping out a kid every 10 or 11 months because somebody had to work at the farm. They were baby uh, makers. So, right. That's all they did. Yeah, they were. They were that. Uh, and, and also, it should be noted, there's literally nothing to do in this time. So like bucking is like the only thing there is to do. So. People are like, well, what should we do today? Yeah, especially, especially <laughs> if you can't read. <laughs> well, right. People are like, what? Well, I mean, but even if you could, you couldn't afford a book. So, like, so it's like, what should we do today? Well, do you want to try, like, puking and laughing at each other? No, I'm kind of tired of doing that. You want to fuck? Yeah, I guess we'll fuck. I mean, like, those are your choices. It's it's those, you know, it's that. Uh, tell that kid, the uh, the unnamed one, uh, them to get out of the room. Uh, hey, you, you four-year-old, get out of here. You know, I don't want you. You might get sprayed with some pox. Anyway, um, good times oh, back in the 18th century, man. It's a good time to be alive. Sorry for all that. So, um, okay, anyway. So um, when smallpox ravaged Philadelphia in 1774, it took some like 300 people's lives. And, quote, uh, the chief among them were the children of the poor people, according to Ben Franklin. So you can really understand why the masses kind of rejected opening inoculation hospitals, right? It's fine for rich people, but regular folks were just like, no, you, you can't do that to the rest of us. So those hospitals just sort of allowed the wealthy a chance to avoid the worst dangers of smallpox. But as Adams, Abigail Adams behavior indicates, it also allowed them to spread the disease sort of far and wide and uh, to spread it among the most vulnerable who could never get inoculated. So working people didn't exactly reject inoculation out of ignorance or superstition, as many people have kind of suggested. It's not so much that as it is like a realistic evaluation of risk and opportunities or lack thereof, right? Like if you kind of understand the situation, you're like, no, it wasn't that people were just like stupid and superstitious. They were, they were like, no, this is genuinely dangerous for me, a poor person who cannot afford to have this operation, like screw the rich people who can afford this. Like that's, it's not good for the rest of us. You know what I mean? Anyway. Uh, so anyway. By July 3rd, 1775, when George Washington arrived and assumed command of the now Continental Army in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Anglo-American colonists were a kind of a, a patchwork of like immunity and vulnerability, right? Most of New Englanders who made up nearly all of his force were vulnerable to smallpox, which was a fact that was, was made even more concerning by the fact that smallpox was raging at that time in nearby Boston. Like they were in Cambridge. I mean, if you know where anything about Boston, Cambridge is mm-hmm. Boston. I mean, Cambridge is right there. Um, anyway, Boston was at that time occupied uh, under siege, you know, by the British. And unlike the British troops who 
had a significantly higher proportion of immunity and a kind of standing policy to inoculate vulnerable soldiers, Washington understood that his troops would need to fight on two fronts. One, the kind of military martial front, but also the other one, a viral front. Like he understood this. And a smallpox outbreak among continental soldiers would likely devastate the war effort before it ever even got started, not only because of the deaths, but also just the incapacitation that smallpox brought, right? Like incapacitating people for like five weeks would would ruin the army before they ever, I mean, this was still 1775. So, you know, he just knew he couldn't risk that. He felt that he couldn't risk that. You know, we can kind of wonder what Washington was thinking on July 4th, 1775, right? Year before the declaration, when he surveyed his troops for the very first time. Obviously, we can't know what he thought, but like he had to know that when you summon war, that the horseman doesn't arrive alone, right? It comes with famine, death, and pestilence to complete the quartet. And gentlemen, that, I think, is an episode of the podcast, Unbalanced Views of History. Very nice. Where we're going to end part one. So um, so I know we haven't really even gotten to the war yet, but like, that's what we're doing next. We'll do, we'll do some war stuff. Nice. Any thoughts? comments larry you seem very impressed yeah i'm impressed because i would have just read the wikipedia thing on smallpox and just called it a day (laughs) (laughs) but that's so boring but it's quick though uh sometimes uh things worth doing are worth doing long enough to leave everyone satisfied it's not as yeah i know but like like you you, we basically took the 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 long and winding Candyland path of like Wow, people have always been like shitty and stupid, and it's like, yeah, I, I know. Um, I mean, because <laughs> they still kind of gestures are. at everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mike, thoughts? Uh, not quite as sad and depressing as I thought it was going to be. Um, we haven't gotten to the sad, depressing part. Right. This has been this is the happy, joyful introduction. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I I, I uh, learned quite a bit. I didn't know that uh, smallpox killed so many people. Or that it made you completely melt away, like yeah, like the uh, like the 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 bad like, guy in, uh, uh, in in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, just like that, just like you, just like when you open up the ark. Yeah, it it is just yep. like that. I just I never thought of that. That's just a slower version. It's just a slower version, though. It just happens over two weeks instead of a few seconds. Man, I would have written that in. It's totally that guy. It's it's that scene, one frame at a time, like one frame per second for however long By that the takes. Way, a scene that was way ahead of its time. I mean, no one, no one thought to make a, ca- a man into a candle and then uh, melt it. And it. That was not it's a true. candle. That was a real man that they melted. <laughs> that was innovative. They got away with it. They got away with but it. He was, they were but he was yeah. a Nazi. So no one complained. So he no was a real Nazi. So Don't say fine. anything. Right. It was all good with the union. It was all good. It's like, you're killing a man. You're killing people. <laughs> like, you're melting they found them, it. But they're Nazis. Ah, it's all good. They found that guy in Argentina, and they were like, "Have we got a job for you?" There's a, hey, Liz, there's this guy in Argentina with a real thick German accent, real suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be an actor? Funny looking mustache. He's got a funny looking mustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, good times. Um, so Larry, do you want to plug your uh, plug your pluggables? You've got. I know you've got some shows coming up. Uh yeah. You can follow. You can follow me on uh. Larry XL on uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, comedian Larry XL on Instagram. Any shows coming up? Uh, yeah, I am. What is that? I'm at the church of satire uh, in uh, Hanover, Pennsylvania, September 30th and October 1st. And then uh, October 
8th. I'm at uh, Westville, New Jersey. It's a wrestling rink, a wrestling venue um, that's going to be converted into a comedy club. And then uh, October 14th, I'm going to be at the Comedy Works in Bristol, Pennsylvania. Very nice. Very nice. Church of Satire. Somebody else is playing there that I know. Uh, another Baltimore guy. Uh, Tom Meyer? No, I've known, I've known Tom Myers for years. Yeah, so. Tom Myers. That's what it is. Tom Myers. He's, he's a pretty funny guy. Yeah. He's, he is, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely a character. He's got a, he's got a podcast that's, uh, he's, I don't know. He's an interesting dude. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to inside baseball or anything. I just was, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. The other guy, the other guy from Baltimore that I, that I have to say I, I really do love is, uh, is Stavi. Stavros Halkius. No, I don't know Stavros. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's, uh, uh, like the, uh, I'm surprised you don't know Mike Stork. Yeah. That, that, I was gonna say, that sounds really familiar, but I'm not, I'm not familiar. The only, I, the only reason I brought up Stavros is because he's, uh, maybe does the best Baltimore accent of, of anybody I've ever heard in my life. And, um, <laughs> I mean, and I grew up there, uh, and I've never heard anybody do Baltimore better than him. Uh, and, and he uses it to such great effect. Like when he, he, I mean, it's just, it's like every time he does it, I'm just like, my God, nobody does that Baltimore. Oh, as good as this man. Yeah. How did he master that? Oh, <laughs> to make it sound so, just so gross and so trashy oh. and somehow funny at the same time. So <laughs> and, gross. Yeah, and yet he, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, that Stavi baby is, uh, is pretty good Baltimore, uh, comedian. Mike, do you have any pluggables? Uh, I want to tell the good people where we can be found. Yeah, let's do that. Well, let's. Well, yeah, why don't you do that? So uh, why don't you why don't you earn your keep for yeah, once? Yeah, let the ta- let the talent earn his keep. <laughs> so we can be found on Twitter. So tweet us at Views Unbalanced, and I believe we even have a Facebook page. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Facebook.com forward slash Unbalanced Views. Where else are we at? Anywhere? Of course, you can always find us wherever you pretty much find your favorite podcast. And if you want to send us. We're anchored at Podbean, podbean.com slash Unbalanced Views. And uh, it'd be great if you like us and subscribe to us there. Uh, but also we're on Spotify and iHeart and Apple Podcasts and uh, I don't know, all the things. And if, if you want to send us any recommendations and uh, any donations. <laughs> you can send them to uh unbalanced views at gmail. Send donations through the email. That would be that's good. Like uh it should like just your checking and, and just your checking number and your routing and number. And the subject line and, should say uh, uh you know take what you want. What was the one I saw the other day that was like it was a message that was like this is Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Charles has seized the throne. I'm alive, but but he's locked me away. I need I need money so that I can regain reclaim my throne. That you send us that in the subject line. <laughs> I'm Queen Elizabeth. Please send me money. If you send that, if you send that to England, you'd get a lot of money. Yeah, I bet you'd get. They're crazy. Probably 500 pounds, so you could pay your fine for getting inoculated for smallpox. <laughs> anyway, Larry, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. I uh, you're welcome. I, I certainly, uh, you know, I really do appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and uh, close this out here. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening. 